You're listening to Constitutionally Sound from the Center on Constitutional Change. We'll be back in your feeds with new episodes in September, but for now, please enjoy this episode from our archive. For more from us throughout the summer, please visit our website, centeronconstitutionalchange.ac.uk, for the latest blogs and analysis. Hello and welcome to Constitutionally Sound, a podcast brought to you every month from the Centre on Constitutional Change at the University of Edinburgh. I'm Alan Little, I'm a journalist and broadcaster, and in this episode six, we'll be considering the fallout from the parliamentary and Senate elections in Wales and Scotland and the local elections in England that took place earlier this month. But we're going to concentrate in Scotland and Wales. So a brief recap. Governing parties in all three of Britain's nations won the day. Labour in Wales won half the seats in the Senate. The SNP in Scotland fell just one short of an overall majority. But with a record eight, Green MSPs have a strong pro-independence majority in Parliament. And the Conservatives in England, taking the previously safe Labour seat of Hartlepool, strengthening their hold over the so-called Red Wall. There were no elections in Northern Ireland. Ailsa Henderson is here. She's Professor of Political Science at the University of Edinburgh and a Research Fellow here at the Centre on Constitutional Change. She's currently leading the team conducting the Scottish Election Study, funded by the Economic and Social Research Council. She did the same for the 2016 elections in Scotland and the 2014 independence referendum, so she has a lot of experience and insight to draw on, as does Richard Wynne-Jones. He's Director of the Wales Governance Centre at Cardiff University, and he too leads the Welsh Election Study. And together, Ailsa and Richard co-directed the Future of England State of the Union surveys and co-authored a recent book called Englishness, The Political Force Transforming Britain, which came out in March. Let's start the most about the most striking thing in each nation. The governing party came out on top. How much do you think, the two of you, did the so-called vaccine bounce play a part? Ailsa first. Yeah, not not very much, I think, um, because we don't we don't see a bounce. We we see kind of a flat line, um, not just for the SNP, but also for for every other party. I mean, the the remarkable thing about this election, on the one hand, is that there is incredible stability in the numbers, both in terms of the percentage of the votes that the parties won but also the seats that they came out with are not markedly different from what they had in 2016. So the the one message is that there's incredible stability. So there's no no bounce for for anyone. But the other is that there is a considerable level of churn occurring below that stability where you've got lots of voters switching from one party to the other, but the aggregate effect is one of, of a steady state. And do you agree with that, Richard? I think that the story in Wales might be might be a bit different. Um, it's certainly the case that you know Labour winning an election in Wales is hardly news. They've won every uh, general election and every devolved election in Wales since 1922, which is a level of one-party dominance that I think is unparalleled anywhere in the democratic world. So you know Labour winning an election is hardly uh, breaking news. But I do think that the that the whole COVID experience was helpful at, at least in in some ways for labor because one of the things which is striking about labor's performance in wales and, and and makes wales very different from what's going on in england 
is that it, it does appear that Labour managed to uh, persuade former Labour voters who voted uh, leave in the 2016 Brexit referendum. It persuaded some of those people to come back to Labour in a way that didn't happen uh, in England. And I think um, COVID is part of that, that the way that COVID has given the First Minister here, Mark Drakeford, a completely different kind of profile to that enjoyed by any other devolved politician. And interestingly, I mean, the, the fact that there would be an incumbent bounce wasn't obvious. It certainly wasn't obvious to the Conservatives in Wales, who've spent the last year plus attacking the Welsh Government on the basis that the UK Government in England has done everything better. And, you know, they were, they were clearly confident that that message would resonate and their result in the end was quite disappointing. So I think COVID is part of the story here, although that is in the context of very, very, very long-term Labour dominance. And to what extent do these uh, results paint a picture of the continued fragmentation of a single integral UK electorate into three distinct national electorates in which, in each of the three nations, a dominant party that is somehow perceived as that party, the party that speaks for that nation's interest in the union, emerges as the stable owner, if you like, of the majority of majority support in each nation. Yeah, I mean, I think it, I think it further confirms that that's what's been going on for a long time. I, I think it's fair to say that there are four electorates in the UK rather than three. So there's a distinct. There's, I mean, the, the the most distinct, obviously, is Northern Ireland, where there's completely separate parties. But if we're if we're looking to step Mainland Britain. I mean, I, th I think the fact that there's been three separate electorates motivated by a slightly different understanding of what the primary political community is for those electorates. I mean, I, th I think that's been that's been true for for rather a while, and we've seen it in the most recent Westminster election. So these are just further confirmation of that. I, th I think your point's an important one. It's it's not just the fact that there are there there are by chance different parties that are most popular in each of those different um electorates i think it's it's what we know about why those parties are important that reinforces the this the sense of distance across those electorates and and it is really it's the party that is perceived to best stand up for that particular part of Britain that is doing well. So the Conservatives are doing well because they are perceived to be a party that best stands up for England, Welsh Labour. I mean, Richard can talk about this far better than I can, but Welsh Labour success is in part because it is best seen to stand up for, for Wales and the SNP plays the same role uh, in in Scotland. So I think I think that I think it's not just that they're choosing different parties, it's why they're choosing different parties and, and why they're landing on on different parties that's important. I just follow up on that because I think this is this is such an important point uh, that the two of you raise. I mean, what we have is three different national parties in the three different parts of Britain. I know in 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 Scotland the SNP get the majority of people identify as Scottish to vote for them. In England, the Conservatives are clearly getting a majority of those who feel English to vote for them. And in Wales, Labour are managing to get a majority of those who feel Welsh to vote for them. And 
so and Labour in Wales is particularly fascinating, I think, because they ran very much as a Welsh party. They stressed that Welsh values are different and that they represent those values. They've been very, very careful not to align themselves with the Conservatives in some kind of unionist camp against um, the, the nationalists, rather. They've been, you know, they've been very much trying to keep on board the half of Labour voters in Wales now who say that they would vote for independence. So we have three parties who are, you know, with different levels of self-consciousness, deliberately playing to a national audience and doing so incredibly uh, successfully. And that is under, and, you know, and that has huge implications which we may come to uh, in terms of the future of the state. And also what Richard was saying earlier about Labour winning every election in Wales since the 1920s, which is a really remarkable thing. We used to say something similar about Labour in Scotland, that it had won every election parliamentary, UK parliamentary, Scottish parliamentary and local. Labour had won every election in Scotland for half a century until 2015. Now, something... Uh, something inverse happened to what Richard is describing there in Wales with, with the, the Labour Party in Wales moving itself onto the territory of identity politics, ident expressing itself as a unique, a, a specifically Welsh party. Surely something re in reverse happened here. The, 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 the Labour Party here in Scotland, the Labour Party in 2014 made what now looks like a mistake in standing shoulder to shoulder with the Conservatives in the Better Together campaign. And at the same time, the SNP over many, many years had moved itself away from uh, overtly identity politics and onto the territory of social justice, the territory of social democratic values, which traditionally was Labour's place in the electoral topography, if you like. Is, is that characterization fair? Yeah, I mean, I think that's certainly I think that's certainly part of it. But it's not I mean, I think I think the referendum was important for two reasons. One. Um, one, as you mentioned, because of Labour's Labour's role within within Better Together, and the decision was made not just to have a campaign that acted as like a, a clearinghouse for information, and then within that, the different parties would kind of manage their own communications, but rather to to have something that was more of a merged entity. And I think that strategic decision probably didn't. Help, but I think it was also it also provided an opportunity for the Yes Scotland campaign and therefore the SNP within it to really communicate that message about what kind of Scotland do you want? Because we know that over the course of the campaign, different messages resonated in different ways with the electorate, and as referendum day approached, the message that was most successful for the Yes Scotland campaign was this message about what kind of Scotland do you want? Do you want one where the gap between rich and poor is large or one where the gap between rich and poor is small? And if you want that latter one, then the only option available for you is independence because otherwise we won't be able to manage it. So it was, it was, it was partly Labour's doing and it was also partly how the SNP occupied that space. But I think that's only part of it because we could pick up you know, as part of a larger comparative project, we were polling in Quebec and Scotland in 2010 and 2011. And we picked up as early as then that Labour had a problem in Scotland. It was not seen to be the party that best stood up for Scotland. That, that mantle had already transferred to the SNP considerably before the 2014 independence referendum. So I think Indy Rep is part of it. I think it's 
I think it was how Labour reacted to, to devolution and, and this absence of a kind of robust defence of devolution that was a bit missing. But we also have to look at the role that UK Labour's positioning on things had on the fortunes, the electoral fortunes of Scottish Labour. We know that certainly in 2019, you know, after the referendum, Scottish Labour was in trouble. But at each successive Westminster election, they lost half again of their support. So the you know, the initial shock of the referendum was part of the story, but it's a story that continued long after the referendum. And we know that part of it was also UK Labour and part of it was Corbyn in particular and Scottish Labour's opposition to, to constitutional change as well. One of the pleasures of, of working so closely with Elsa on the various projects is that we get to talk a lot about the kind of comparisons between... Um, Scottish and, and Welsh politics, and um, you know, and, and it really can't be overstressed how different the trajectories of Scottish and Welsh Labour have been, not just over the last decade, but since 1999. So, you, we, you know, it's often forgotten that in 1999, Plaid Cymru outperformed the SNP in the first devolved election. They gave Labour the absolute fright of their lives. And Labour responded by very deliberately, very self-consciously moving on to the ground that was being occupied by Plaid Cymru. And so they, they set up, and right from, you know, from kind of 2000, really, they started to differentiate themselves systematically from Labour in power in London and say, we represent something different. Uh, initially, there was talk about clear red water. So the idea was that, Welsh Labour was to the left of New Labour, Tony Blair's New Labour. It's kind of morphed then into Welsh Labour just being Welsh and then Welsh values being social democratic or radical values. So playing the kind of national identity politics game actually means talking about radical values in Wales and how they are, are different. So the Welsh Party has systematically kind of been on that territory very much arguing even when Labour was in power in London, they were standing up to London for Wales. And they they basically played that whole, if we can call it, regional politics game. They played it very differently from uh, Scottish Labour throughout. And they're very and they're really comfortable on that territory. And of course, because it breeds success, even those kind of more unionist so we, we you know there are sections of the parliamentary Welsh Labour Party, Welsh MPs, who are pretty uncomfortable with all of this, uh, yet they know that it works for them electorally. They, they recall in horror what happened to their Scottish Labour MP colleagues uh, after the 2014 referendum. And so, you know, there's a kind of trajectory here. Their problem is, of course, is that as they consolidate their dominance in Wales, that their, their, their colleagues in England and Scotland are falling away, and therefore, you know, what is the Welsh Labour project? But in terms of the internal politics of, of Wales, you've had this consistent differentiation, being very comfortable with the kind of small nationalist, small N nationalist framing, and, and keeping the door open always to radical, very radical constitutional change and not putting themselves in a unionist group with the Conservative Party in Wales, to whom they, 
I mean, I think Labour and Wales would regard themselves as having probably more in common with Plaid Cymru than the Welsh Conservatives. Well, that's, that's very interesting because the opposite is the case here in Scotland. And what's striking is the uh, the tactical voting among what's left the pro-union, the pro-union electorate, about 50% of the country, and the willingness of Labour and Conservative and Lib Dem uh, supporters now in the electorate to switch their loyalty to any of the other two, to, to the party, that, to the candidate that is most likely to keep the SNP out of power. And that speaks of a fundamental realignment, doesn't it, Ailsa, of um, Scottish politics after the 2014 uh, election, uh, the 2014 referendum, two new tribes emerged in Scottish politics to replace the old left-right duopoly, and these two tribes are called yes and no, just as after 2016, the Brexit referendum, two new tribes emerged in English politics, two tribes called Remain and Leave, with the Conservative Party establishing a stranglehold, a, a, a near monopoly over uh, the Leave constituency. Is that is that how you see it? Partly, yeah. I mean, James, James Mitchell and I uh, were writing about the 2019 election in, in Scotland. So we started to say that, you know, there's there's it's helpful if you think of Scotland as four divided into four tribes, because the two referendums relate to one another. They interact with one another. So we have kind of yes, remainers and yes, leavers, no remainers and no leavers. And we won't know until we get the post-election individual level data back to know exactly what was going on in terms of the switching. But if we look at the aggregate patterns, it seems that you have kind of, I was saying over the over the weekend as the, as the results came in from the election that you can think of, you know, pinching a, pinching a, a Welsh, um, a Welsh race. You can think of three Scotlands, right? You can think of those areas where yes was very strong in 2014. And there you saw relatively little movement across the unionist parties uh, and, and fairly moderate swings. And then if you look at no voting Scotland, you then have to turn to what happened in the 2016 referendum to kind of understand the patterns. Because in those parts of the country where leave had been strongest, and I'm not talking about getting over the 50% threshold, because that was just, you know, we think two of the constituencies satisfy that. But if we think of high for Scotland in terms of leave support, so over 40%, then in those areas, we saw the pattern of, of tactical switching among the, the pro-union parties as one that kind of swung in behind the Conservative Party. Whereas in those parts of Scotland where Remain was strongest, we saw different patterns of tactical switching and we saw people tuck in behind the Labour Party and the Lib Dem. So that's what's going on in the in the aggregate. But until we get back the individual level data, it's it's hard for us to say what's going on within the electorate, because we know that not all voters will react the same way. There will be people who, who feel so strongly about Remain that they can't quite bring themselves to vote for the Conservative Party, no matter how strong their, their support for the union. And we also know the reverse is true, that there will be people who are so supportive of, of Brexit that they can't quite bring themselves to back, for example, a very pro-Remain Liberal Democrat Party, right? So we know that not all not all pro-union voters are equal in that way. And there will be some that are more prone to switching 
than others. But certainly from the aggregate results, it looks like we have to look at those two referendums and the way that they've created those four tribes uh, in Scotland and generated very different patterns within the electorate. And very briefly, just to, to boil it down to something very simplistic, is there an alignment now between support for yes in the 2014 independence referendum and support for remain? Are those two constituencies getting more and more closely aligned? Is there a crossover from no to yes among remain supporters? And is that the dominant movement? Is that the most significant movement? I think it's it's more complicated than that because again we have we have a fair amount of stability in the numbers in terms of if if you're looking at how people voted in 2014 and how they say they would vote now we've tended to see the proportion of people switching from no to yes is quite similar to the proportion of people switching from yes to no what's what's important I think is if you look underneath the hood, as it were, and uh, or underneath the bonnet, I guess, and, and, and look at, well, who are the kinds of people that are switching from no to yes? And if we look at those people who are no voters in 2014 and then remain voters in 2016 and now say that they would vote yes in a referendum, they're, they're quite different from the electorate as a whole. Women are overrepresented in that group. Younger voters in particular are overrepresented and that group and, and that that group, the demographics of that group are part of the clues we have about, for example, the closing of the gender gap in terms of support for independence, because it was always the case that men were more supportive of independence than were women in Scotland. But that gap has not only narrowed, but in many polls has actually crossed so that we're finding that women are far more supportive of independence than our men. Age still has a relationship in terms of support for independence, but you now have to to move quite a ways up the the age profiles before you find a demographic group that uh, that has a majority supporting no. So the age relationship remains, but it's now just stronger. I want to move on uh, shortly to what happens next, but let me just ch- uh, check in with Richard. Obviously, the constitutional question, whether Scotland should be an independent country or not, still plays very, very strongly here and determines to a large extent how many people cast their vote in Scottish parliamentary and indeed Westminster elections. What's the place of the constitutional question in, in the choices that Welsh voters make, Richard? Yeah, that's, that's a very good question. I mean, a couple, a couple of things to say, really. One is the dog that didn't back in, in the Welsh election, so we went into this election with a a group of right-wing populist parties uh, who were at one point expecting to, to do rather well in the election on the basis of abolishing devolution. And the Conservative Party itself has been flirting more and more openly with, uh, if not abolishing devolution, at least pushing back devolution substantially. And in the end, those right wing, there was a party called Abolish the Welsh Assembly, UKIP in Wales had renamed itself UKIP Abolish the Senate. So there was a a whole group of them who were kind of pretty hostile to devolution. And they got um, they got annihilated. Um, So none of them, UKIP had done pretty well in the 2016 devolved election in Wales, which had been overshadowed really by the Brexit referendum. that that those parties all got nowhere at all, and so I, you know that attempt to try and mobilise 
anti-devolution sentiment. And there is a residual anti-devolution sentiment in Wales, especially amongst some of the older voters. Some of the people who were involved in the anti-European campaigning thought that they would kind of get a, a new lease of life as anti-devolution campaigners. That didn't happen at all. And then on the other kind of... Uh, part of the spectrum completely. Over the last couple of years in Wales, we've seen the emergence of a, a really interesting grassroots independence movement, which is, you know, which is now up to around 18 or 19,000 members, which in Welsh terms means it's, you know, second only to the Labour Party as a political movement in Wales these days and has been, you know, garnering a lot of support. Polling now shows that support for evidence, uh, support for independence is up to around a third of the electorate in Wales, which is, you know, basically not far off where it was in early 2014 in, in Scotland. And going into the election, Plaid Cymru was really hoping to capitalise on that. And there were certainly people in Labour who were a bit nervous about where that might go. And basically that got nowhere. Uh, so Plaid Cymru had a, another disappointing uh, election where they basically uh, stood still. So they completely man failed to to make any progress on the back of this upsurge in support for independence. The problem, uh, and this will kind of, I guess, lead us into the the, the next bit of the com conversation. The, the problem for Labour is they obviously they've done brilliantly well. They've done well on the basis of an explicit argument that the UK in its current form is dead. That's what Mark Drakeford says. The UK requires root and branch uh, reform in which devolution is properly entrenched and the state centrally adapts to devolution. The problem is, of course, for, for Welsh Labour, is it's not even clear that, that Keir Starmer believes that's the case. Uh, and certainly Labour look as if they're out of power in London for, you know, a decade would be, I suspect, be would be optimistic. So Welsh Labour's project for the future of the UK is not one that they can actually deliver. And there's a danger that they find themselves in a position where their lack of influence is exposed. And this gives another fillip over the medium term to the campaign for independence. Well, it's interesting listening to you to describe that it reminds me very much of the picture in Scotland in the 1980s and 90s when the camp, when the, the idea of establishing a Scottish Parliament was gaining strong public traction. It wasn't the SNP who benefited from that electorally. They continued to send very small numbers uh, of MPs to Westminster. I remember being at SNP headquarters on the night of the 1992 election. They were hoping for 10 or 12 MPs and the, in, in the end they returned two. Uh, and the, the devolution project was dead in the water again for another five years and now look where we are so if if scotland is is a, an outlier of what could happen in wales then the scottish experiences as you both say these electorates are very stable but in scotland nothing changed for 50 years until suddenly everything changed <laughs> well, well having, having had 100 years of no change in wales you know i think i think i'm never betting against labor success but it is you know i think i think what it is striking, I think, especially for our listeners in Scotland, the extent to which Labour is keeping the door open to very, very radical constitutional change. And it's now pretty standard for my Labour-supporting students um, to be pro-independence or pro such a radical degree of constitutional change for the UK that it amounts to independence. That is now pretty normal in Labour circles. Again, something very similar happened here, and of course it prepared the ground for that mass transfer of support from Labour 
to the SNP in 2015 and later. Ailsa, we've only got a few minutes left. What position does this put Nicola Sturgeon in now? And the question, one of the questions that dominated uh, the, the campaign was, given Boris Johnson's clear determination not to concede uh, another independence referendum, is there a democratic route to a second referendum and to possible independence or not? <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I mean, <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. And I'm not sure many people do. But I... And I, I have no insight insight into what what the parties are thinking, what their you know what their activists um, or what their elected members are are arguing for. What I can tell you is what the electorate wants. Um, so I can answer that as someone who is knee deep in survey data rather than someone with any inside knowledge of what what people will try to do or want to do. And that, and the absence of a the absence of a majority for the SNP alone does provide a bit of an obstacle for them in the minds of the electorate because we know that there was a, a, a meaningful distinction for the electorate between a pro independence majority and an SNP majority, and we know that that's not just true of the electorate as a whole, but also if we look at SNP supporters, that we know that for them as well there was a there was a difference in terms of how forceful you could be pushing things and how quickly you could move. Because I think there's a there's an important distinction here in terms of timing, but also the kind of mandate issue of right to call and related to that, what do you do if the UK government says no, right? So there's, I guess there's three things there. There's one, how quickly do you go? And then do you even have the have the right to call it? And then what do you do if you're if something gets in your way, right? And so for SNP voters, we know that there's a difference between it for them, even in terms of going quickly, like going in, um, if you ask the question whether you should go within 12 months for a referendum, we know that support drops from 70% if there's an SNP majority to 60% if it's just a pro-independence majority. So there's a difference um, across all of these things in terms of speed, mandate, and reaction in the absence of that majority. Now they're one seat short, right? And the other the other element of that is that there's a real first past the post logic that is continuing to be used to interpret mandates because we're not looking at thresholds of support in terms of votes from the electorate. We're looking at seats won on the day. And so this notion that you would, you would achieve a majority um, is kind of at the anchoring assumption there is that a majority is possible, but we do have an electoral system that wasn't designed to prevent majorities, but was provide, you know, designed to prevent false majorities. And as a result, it's actually very, very difficult to achieve um, a majority of um, a majority of seats uh, in the Scottish Parliament. So that threshold, you need a you need a majority of seats, is a, is perhaps an artificially high one that the electorate has set, but but set it they have. And I think that poses some problems. But it is telling, isn't it, that that even amongst the 50% of people who support independence, many of them, perhaps as many as half, are cautious about going for uh, a referendum in the next couple of years, given the pandemic, given the the, the fact that, that the level of support for independence is not yet high enough to be sure that they would win it. Uh, many even pro, more cautious pro-independence supporters think it's, it would be safer to wait until support is is much closer to sixty percent than fifty percent. 
Well, that that's just it. I mean, and that that I think is drawing its parallels from from what happened in Quebec after 1995. You know, it was an exceedingly um, close result in 1995, and the decision was right. You know, we're not going to go again until we have these winning conditions. And the winning conditions were favorable economic outcomes, a popular leader, and a clear lead in the polls. And they've certainly got a popular leader. That's no problem. Now, they have a lead in some polls, not in every poll. And it was far clearer in the summer in terms of a gap between yes and no support than what we're seeing now. But the economic situation is far from, from settled. So if you're thinking in terms of those winning, those old winning conditions, then they're not necessarily in a, in a positive place. But the other lesson from Quebec that I think people will absolutely have in their minds is that you can... You can have a second independence referendum, but you can't really have a third, right? And so I think that's part of what's playing in people's minds is that it's not just, you know, you'll have another kick at the can and then in another generation, however constructed, we'll have another, another kick at the can. I mean, I think this is, I think it's very hard to have a third one. And that's not because, you know, the institutional rules change and people put up, um, kind of constitutional obstacles to you having another. I think the evidence is that the electorate can't, wouldn't countenance having a third as well. So, I mean, I think there's it's high stakes. Let me uh, f- finish by asking a political scientist to do something very unscientific. Richard Wynne-Jones, uh, what effect in w- would there be in Wales if Scotland were to plump for independence in the end? Wales is um, the UK's... Montenegro. Um, so, um, and it's not an exact comparison, obviously, uh, and thankfully, but um, Montenegro was part of the former Yugoslavia, which was pretty happy with the way things were. Uh, so, you know, extensive autonomy within the federal uh, Yugoslav structure. But what happened is that the rest of the states fell away, and the Montenegrins found themselves uh, just, it was just them and the Serbs left and that suddenly became a less attractive proposition and so that group of people who had supported Montenegrin independence was swollen and were just enough for them to get over the line and they're now an independent state and certainly if you talk to people in political Wales even people who would consider themselves to be very strong unionists the view is uh, rightly or wrongly the view is that Scottish independence is inevitable the view also then is that Irish unity is inevitable at some point. And, you know, and um, to be honest, people don't particularly care about the situation in Northern Ireland, but they view Irish unity as an as inevitability. And then people will, the kind of, there'll be a pause in the conversation and then it'll be, well, it's just us and the English and that changes everything. Um, and so, um, I mean, a, so a, a lot depends on what's going to happen in, in Scotland. A lot depends also on how the UK government handles things, because if the UK government is intent on undermining devolution, and some of its behaviour suggests that it is, then that will push more and more people in Wales into the independence camp. It will have the opposite impact to to the one that the UK government thinks it will have. But certainly, uh, there's a sense in Wales of things will happen to us, and then we will have to respond rather than we make the political weather. It's interesting. I, I'm going to finish with this observation since uh, you make the analogy with former Yugoslavia. It's not an analogy I would press very far at all, but I did uh, spend four years reporting the collapse of Yugoslavia in the early 90s. And one of the observations that was made there in Bosnia in particular was that 
if it was just a case of Croatian or Slovenian nationalism alone, or even both of those nationalisms alone, with wise and benign leadership from Belgrade, the Federal Republic could have survived those two nationalist movements because sport for independence did not uh, get win majority uh, in either of those countries until uh, it was clear that leadership from Belgrade was not going to be either wise or benign. And the consensual view in Bosnia, certainly, was that the one nationalism that the Federal Republic could not survive was a strident, aggressive, xenophobic nationalism from the dominant nation, uh, uh, Serbia. So uh, that, in the end, was the lesson uh, that, that they took away from that. Again, it's not an analogy that I would press too far, but it does uh, seem to speak to the subject of the book the two of you have written together, uh, Englishness, the force that is transforming Britain. But that probably is a conversation for another day because we're out of time. Thank you both very much, Elsa Henderson and Richard Wynne-Jones. Check out their new book, Englishness. Uh, and to learn more about the Scottish and Welsh election studies, please visit scottishelection.ac.uk and join us next time. Thanks. Thank you.